0: Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hempel, features writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. My guest on today's episode is writer-director Ryan Johnson, who has followed his delightful crowd-pleasing mystery movie, Knives Out, with an equally delightful and clever sequel, Glass Onion. It's the perfect kind of sequel, in my opinion, a movie that delivers the satisfactions of the original while striking out in completely new directions. I talked about that with Ryan, and about the challenges of blocking an ensemble movie that takes place in limited locations why The Last of Sheila is a touchstone movie for so many filmmakers, and about the film's exquisite score, among other things. No real spoilers here, though you will probably get more out of the discussion if you watch Glass Onion first. So if you haven't seen it, make your way over to Netflix as soon as possible. For me, Glass Onion's kind of a perfect sequel because it delivers a lot of the satisfactions of the original, but it's still a very different kind of movie. And I'm curious for you going in, what were the guiding principles in terms of what you wanted to carry over from the first movie and where you wanted to go in different directions?
1: I, I wanted to make this a whole new deal. That's kind of the only way this was exciting to me. And, um, you know, I kind of looked back to the source of inspiration for the first one, which is Agatha Christie, who was writing books into her 80s 90s i forget how long she lived but she was writing all the way up to the end of her life and she never repeated herself and um also the genre is an interesting one it's um it's so malleable it's a genre that can accommodate other genres inside of it i think about like christie's like you know the abc murders is basically a serial killer thriller and um and then There Were None is basically like a slasher movie. She did gothic romance with Endless Night. I mean, there's just an, a wide variety of things that you can do with it. And I don't know, beyond just like setting and look and and methods of murder and, and, and all that stuff. So uh, I don't know. It, it, yeah, I, I, I kind of wanted to... And I also wanted to show the audience, wanted to plant like a really clear flagpole for the audience who are maybe used to a more serialized style of film series, that they're going to be getting a whole different thing with each new one of these. That's kind of why I'm excited to go right into the third one, to do something totally different from this and really show kind of the wingspan of of what these things can be.
0: Yeah, it occurred to me watching it that as long as people keep liking these movies, you're in kind of a great position because you can, as you say, you know, you can make different kinds of movies within this kind of movie and you can explore different issues, you know, like both both of these movies have these this kind of, you know, satirical cultural commentary and so it's like you can kind of make movies about whatever you want to make within this framework that where you've kind of got a guaranteed audience, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, as long as people keep turning up for it and then also as long as Daniel and I are having fun. I think that's, that's the other, like, kind of in, selfish ingredient of this is, like, the moment it feels like a chore to us, I think it'll probably end up feeling different on the screen. I think you can tell how much fun we're having, <laughs> hopefully, when you watch these. That's kind of the, the the spark at the heart of them, I think, is just he and I feeling like little kids getting away with something. And um, and so, you know, that's the other thing. The second that that starts to dim, well, there'll be time to move on to something else.
0: In terms of sitting down to write this one, now, when you made the first Knives Out, didn't really have the same kinds of expectations. I mean, I don't think anybody, you know, was necessarily expecting that was going to be as huge as it was. Um, so that one you could kind of write to a certain degree. Nobody even knew you were doing it. Now you're doing this one and all eyes are on you. I mean, how do you uh, put that out of your head or do you when you're writing? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, it's it, it's sort of the thing where, you know, going up the hill of the roller coaster is the scariest part. And then once you're over and actually on the ride, it... it the fear you don't have time to be afraid and that's similar i mean it's kind of a similar experience doing the star wars movie where the anticipation of oh my god i'm doing uh, yeah yeah, can i do this was kind of scary but then the instant you actually start working on it um meaning start writing like figure out an idea you're excited about and dive in uh yeah all that goes away and then you're just absorbed in. oh this is exciting i haven't done this before and um It's also, it's that that kind of pressure you're talking about is a very abstract thing. It's something that, um, you know, I I don't think I'm, I I can't really, you can't really hold that in your head as a human being, even if you want to, because it's such a weird abstract thing that doesn't really, it's a very abstract fear, I think.
0: And in terms of plotting one of these movies out, I mean, are you the kind of writer who, you know, you're Planning all of this out before you sit down and really write a page of the script? Is it something where you're finding it as you go? Is it in between? Yeah, I've, I've so, and but
1: this is the way I've written all my scripts I outline, 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 outline. I'm a big, big, big structure guy, and actually, I'd say coming up with the structure of the movie is um, it's the very first step in terms of cracking the story for me. So, um, uh I was having like a conversation with the the Daniels who did everything everywhere all at once. And we were talking about structure because we both are really into starting structurally. And they put it really beautifully saying the meaning of the movie is contained in its structure. And I think people sometimes think of structure as kind of like a, a cold like... Uh, Uncreative aspect, like your inciting incident by page thirty, and your midpoint of the blah blah blah. Um, to me, the structure is the skeleton of the story, and everything you want the audience to feel and experience better be reflected in the shape. Of, it's like the shape of the roller coaster, basically, is the structure of it. So, so the first ninety percent of the process, I'll spend in little notebooks, just coming up with the story and mapping it all out, and I'll draw arcs and and do like little. Um, cross-hatches on the arcs and kind of figure out where the sequences go and I need the entire thing mapped out completely in my head and then it's only at the very very end of the process the very last step is I sit down and start typing Um, and the added benefit of that is at that point then I've been living with the characters in my head for six or seven months and they're ready to start talking you know they're uh, they can't shut up
0: well the structure of this movie is great because I always I like movies where the structure kind of resets almost, like Psycho or Something Wild. You know, I'm a big sucker for those kinds of movies. And I don't want to get into spoilers or anything, but you do kind of have a structure here where the movie, suddenly your understanding of how you're seeing all of this changes, um, and which is really cool. Like something like that, do you have reference points for something like that? I mean, are there other movies you think of that have, like I, you know, like I say the other movies have done those kind of structural resets or something or? Well, that's
1: what was kind of exciting is I I could think of examples of movies that have done sort of that thing, like, you know, even like, you know, Unfaithfully Yours or something like that where it's like you see a, a version of something and you go back and you resee it or um, uh, Gambit does a similar thing. I, and and I couldn't. That was what was kind of exciting. Is like God. Has there ever been a movie that fully committed to this? Literally at the halfway point, pulled this thing off. I. It, I mean, the closest thing, which is a friend of mine, after they saw the movie, said it's kind of like Back to the Future One and Back to the Future Two were in the same film. <laughs> they kind of stuck back to back. And it's like, yeah, kind of. Um, but that no, that was what was exciting to me is the structural challenge of can you pull this off? Can you make this? Can you do this structure? Entire have the entire movie hinge on it, and have the audience be even more involved in the second half as opposed to feel like oh god, we gotta go through all this again.
0: Yeah, no, for me it's where the movie went from me being like okay, I'm really enjoying this to oh this is great, and especially because I really liked what you did with the Benoit Blanc character. I mean, it's that's another unusual thing about this movie for a sequel. Is that the the main character really it's not necessarily so much that he changes, but our perception of him and his role in the movie changes It's very, very different from knives out,
1: yeah, it is, but then you realize why at that at when the twist opens, which to me is really exciting, like it's um. And in Knives Out, we were, you know, we were very much coming into the movie through Anna D'Armas' character's eyes, through Marta's eyes, and Blanc almost served as an antagonist in that movie. And just in terms of the story mechanics, um, we were worried that he was going to catch her. Whereas in this movie, we're actually coming into it through Blanc's eyes. We're meeting all these people, we're discovering the island, he's the fish out of water along with us. And so it, yeah, we kind of get into his head a little bit more um, and then realize, oh, we were had a misperception of <laughs> what being in his head meant. He has a whole other purpose here.
0: And along those lines, too, just thinking about references and influences, I mean, I, I know I've heard you talk many times over the years about your love of Last of Sheila, which is a movie I love, too, and you can definitely see some of its influence in this one. But I'm curious, why do you think film, make, filmmakers love Last of Sheila? Like, I'm going back to... The first director I ever met when I came out here to go to film school was Walter Hill, and he was talking about Last no of shit. Sheila, and this was thirty years ago. Wow! And I just—it awesome. seems like directors love Last of Sheila, and, yeah. and I do too. But I'm just kind of—I've always tried to figure out what it is about that movie that I don't know. I mean, I can talk about why. I'd be curious to talk to to Hill and see like his. I I
1: be. But you're right. I think there's there's a couple things. I think the fact that it's kind of a hidden gem is nice. The fact that you can beat the drum for it and that it's a really good movie that in this very popular genre that not a lot of people still have seen um and then i think the pedigree of having you know sondheim and anthony perkins having written it just the weirdness of that it's also a movie that's so much of it's it's so much fun it's so much of its time also um just uh you know uh, uh diane cannon basically playing like sue mengers and like you know it's it's everybody in it it's the most 70s cast of all time and um it's just so much funky fun you know <laughs> and, uh, so it also feels a bit like a time capsule um very much like a time capsule movie it doesn't feel timeless which i think is another pleasure of it so i don't know man it's yeah just...
0: and it's and it's like it's funny because it is such a great it's like one of the all-time great scripts and Sondheim and Perkins. I mean, did they did they ever write another movie that got made other than that?
1: no? They, I, I I mean, not that I know of. And it's funny though. Like the only, you know, the only like straight non musical play that Sondheim ever wrote was a Who Done It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Yeah.
0: yeah. I know that. I know that at one point John Landis tried to hire them to write Clue, but he said they were too expensive. So.
1: Have <laughs> <laughs> a feeling maybe they just didn't want to write Clue. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, we bring up the cast of. The Last of Sheila, you know, leads me to another thing with Glass Onion, which is, again, really pleasurable uh, ensemble cast. I mean, what you know, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying about you and Daniel having fun. I think one of the pleasures of this movie is you watch it and it feels like the actors are just having a blast, like, and that's very, very infectious. Talk a little bit about the puzzle of putting together an ensemble like this, because obviously you need people. Each person has to be great for their role, but they also all have to click together, and this is a big cast for you have to, to have to do that with. So when you're thinking about casting are you thinking about people one at a time? Is it, oh, I'm going to get this one and then find somebody who matches them and then find somebody who matches them? Or are you thinking about it all at once? How is it all?
1: Well, you're thinking about the makeup of the whole group, kind of, but I mean, that math gets really complicated really fast. So the reality is you, it's kind of enough, it's more than enough work to just focus individually on the roles and think who's best for each part. And if there's anything in terms of the group gelling, I'd say it's just with each individual decision, also kind of taking very seriously the no assholes rule <laughs> and just making sure you really like each of the people that you're casting. Not not that there's a bunch of people we looked at who were assholes or was something, but just, I think you just having kind of the smell test of, is this someone that's going to be fun to hang out with? Luckily, we've kind of, lightning has struck twice with Knives Out and also with Glass Onion where... We've gotten great actors, but also the cast just completely gelled when we got out there. And i um, very lucky on this one because we were out on location in the middle of COVID. So it, it, everybody was, it, it was definitely felt like a theater camp, you know.
0: Now, do you ever run into a problem? I always think about this with big ensemble casts that, you know, you've you know, I always think about the stories that Paul Schrader would tell about Blue Collar, where you would have, like, you know, Richard Pryor was, like, great on take one, and then yeah. that's it, all you're going to get from it. <laughs> and and Kaitel has to, like, work up to yeah, it, you know? Yeah, and so, like, yeah, yeah. and I always think about that. the bigger the ensemble you have, the more you have, like, some people who are going to be, again, great the first time. Some will be great on take seven. Some like rehearsal. Some don't. How do you negotiate all of that?
1: Well I mean we did we, first of all, we didn't have anybody as extreme as that. everybody was kind of you know but at the same time, every actor has different needs and it's it's your that's that's you know ninety percent of your job on set i mean ninety eight percent of your job on set is is figuring out what each actor needs from you in order to give their best and and making sure they've got it you know um and uh and, and being prepared with all the other stuff uh, to the degree where you can really focus on that on set and create a comfortable environment so they feel like they can, you know, that they're being taken care of. I, I mean, I think there's an element where, because this this is, it's the same with Knives Out, but with Glass Onion, these are all movie stars. Like, everybody from, in the entire cast, has, has carried their own films or TV shows. But they all took joy in coming together to work as an ensemble. And I think that is something very deliberate that all of them like made the choice to do. And that leads to all of them working in sync together. It didn't feel like trying to wrangle uh, nine movie stars to sync up, it felt like working with a company who was there to support each other and there to click together into this kind of cohesive whole, you know. So, so that I give credit to the actors for. That was something they all, they all showed up ready to play. And so it made my job much easier just because they, they, they were kind of clicking together in that way. That was kind of the
0: game. Well, and in terms of, and this isn't even necessarily specific just to Glass Onion, but just in general, in terms of figuring out what each actor needs, is that something... Do you have conversations with the actors before you start shooting? I mean, do you say things to them, like, how do you like to work, stuff like that, or is it something you figure out intuitively once you're on the set?
1: Yeah, sometimes I'll you'll, you'll ask that. Sometimes you'll, you know, and, and I think it, it's much more just kind of diving into the pool and seeing, you know, and kind of figuring it out. Because the reality is, you know, some actors are, are very self-aware and will say, yes, I need, you know, and this is, you should know this about me. I'll do this and this and this. But the... Um, uh, some aren't. Some think they're self aware, but then you get on set and it's a different deal. It's and and so the reality is it's kind of, you know, you kind of get on set and you kind of just need to you need to listen, you know. That's that's the big thing is you gotta just kind of listen and because they have enough work to do with Doing their job. It's 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 not their job to train you on how to support them. So you got kind of just kind of be perceptive and and lean in and and figure it out. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's also if you create an environment where it feels cool on set and it's not like doesn't feel high pressure and everyone feels like they can kind of relax a little bit and actually enjoy what they're doing, that helps too.
0: And is there room on a movie like this where the plot is so? precise and intricate for them to kind of play i mean i don't even know if improvise is the right word but just to bring things to it that weren't on the page oh yeah absolutely there's a there's a hell of a lot of that yeah
1: but, but i think um and maybe it's because i start working with this on the script phase so structurally and because writing the words is the very last step for me i tend to not be precious about the words at all uh, i mean sometimes i'll have a bit that I, I'm like, no, let's let's say it exactly this way because because I, I, I like that. But uh, but generally, I think maybe that's a byproduct of my of my writing process is that um, uh, is that I get on set and I'm more than happy to play to however it's, it feels more comfortable for them to say something. If we come up with a better gag, if there's a turn of phrase someone figures out, if there's a joke. Um, there's a lot of that in the movie, and I think I feel like I would be an idiot if I had you know Catherine Hahn and Kate Hudson on set and in Edward Norton and weren't like letting them kind of like toss in fun stuff I mean it's that's so much of what makes a movie feel alive comes from that
0: now from a staging and blocking perspective this to me in a way doing a movie like this seems harder than doing you know a huge action sequence. Like, I feel like a huge action sequence kind of tells you how to do it. Something like this where you've got eight or nine people standing around a table or, you know, in a room. It's a nightmare. (laughs) It is is, is
1: a nightmare. And it, uh, but it, so, yeah, and this movie much more than Knives Out had, because Knives Out only had a couple of scenes where everybody was in a room together talking. And in those scenes, everyone's sitting down for the most part, which makes it a lot easier. In Glass Onion, there was a, bunch of scenes where we're in that huge set that we call the atrium and it's everybody milling around doing really complicated things and talking to each other and yeah it's a it was a fucking nightmare (laughs) but it it uh but it it led me though it was also a great kind of like growth experience because it even more than the first movie it made me go and take a look at um Directors who are great at staging, uh, taking a look at Spielberg, who I think is the modern master of it, or going back and looking at, at, at the way that Wells creates shapes in the frame using the blocking of his actors, and uh, or Michael Curtiz, you know, uh, directors who are masters at creating frames with shapes of people uh, very deliberately. Um, as opposed to thinking in terms of shots or cool shots or camera movement, thinking in terms of, the tools to create the shape of the frame are the bodies in the frame and how does that reflect the dynamics of the scene how does that draw it? specifically with scenes like we're doing where we're actually layering in quite a bit of information and trying to get you to look at certain stuff in certain moments how can the blocking help that how can you know and and so it becomes its own game it's a complicated tough game but it's it, it was a
0: real challenge so just how do you how do you approach that like take like for example so you you get to the set in the morning do you come in with a plan for that or is it a thing where you see you bring in the actors first and see what they want to do how do you
1: I yeah I come in with a plan I storyboard the whole thing especially sequences like that I'll come up in my head with cuz I'll know the set I'll have walked the set and I'll come up with like a rough idea for blocking and for staging and for where the camera will go and and this and that and then I'll bring the actors on first thing uh, before any of the crew have set anything up and we'll do a blocking rehearsal where we'll kind of run through it and I'll walk everyone through kind of what I was thinking and then we'll play the scene and we'll see if anything bumps, basically. We'll see if anything doesn't feel right and you end up making adjustments, you end up coming with new ideas, you end up having to adjust your plan, but you're working off of that initial plan. So I, I don't, I think it would be, I would lose my mind if I showed up on set without a plan, um, especially with something as complicated as that. Um, so, and it ends up being, I, I actually should go back and look at the storyboards that I did. Usually it, with some little tweaks, it ends up being pretty close to what I originally boarded. Usually the blocking tends to make sense to the actors and and, and we make it play, but um, there's always some element you have to adjust for.
0: And are you shooting with multiple cameras or how are you, because I was thinking another thing, I was just thinking from a sheer, like just making your day's point of view, When you've got all these actors and you've got to get, you know, close-ups of all of them or even half of them or whatever, just getting your coverage, I would think, would, you know become
1: yeah steve steve yedlin my dp and i we've we've kind of learned how to use a second camera over the years um without it feeling like a compromise so we we do generally have a second especially for big scenes like that we'll have a second camera and we'll be able to find something that's genuinely useful we usually set our a shot first and then find a place for our b camera to be figure out what they can get that's that's uh that's important and in the case of like for instance, there's. We call it the disruptor scene. There's a scene where Miles kind of holds court up by the pool and gives his whole theory of what disrupting means. And that is a scene where everyone's sitting around in a circle. It's also a long scene that we had one day to shoot. And that was insane. It was crazy. Um, And that was lots of planning, lots of... Great work from the actors, being able to move quickly, using three cameras actually, and really strategically getting coverage with three cameras at a time on three different people, including the scene where so that and that scene, including both when uh, there's a whole section of it that kind of introduces Birdie. There's a whole section of it where Miles lays out his disruptors thing. And there's a whole section of it where Andy kind of busts in the middle and, and, you know, uh, hands everyone their lunch and, and all of that we had one day to get. So that's an example where you got three cameras and you better use them.
0: I want to shift gears to what's probably my favorite aspect of the movie, which is Nathan Johnson's score. Um, I think the music to me, that's what elevates this. It's, to like almost like, like I was watching the movie, listening to that music. And I was like, this feels like I'm watching like a classic movie. That's a classic score. And I think it stands out so much now because, you know, weirdly, I feel like lush melodic scores have kind of gone out of fashion and it's so pleasurable. And what kinds of conversations did you have with him early on? I mean, I, I talked to him and he told me that, you know, he's involved obviously because you guys I've known each other for your whole lives. You know, he's involved very early on in the process. So, like, how early do you start talking to him, and what kinds of conversations did you have about what kind of score you wanted? Very, very early. So, yeah, I I mean,
1: from when I'm writing the script, I'm having conversations with him about the story. He's one of the first people to read the script. He's He comes out on set with us while we're shooting. Um I mean, it's, it's, that's one huge element of our working relationship is that he, Nathan, and that's his kind of like secret weapon is he engages on a story level as opposed to adding music. Yeah. But also, I mean, it, 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 the references we were looking at, it was kind of that big, lush, romantic, sweeping kind of orchestral uh you know, it's, it's, it's lots of references from the '60s, like the Lawrence of Arabia score, or uh, probably our biggest touchstone was. Um, there's a great piece of music that Nina Rota wrote for Death on the Nile, um, for the Peter Ustinov version. That's uh, the main theme, and it's big and romantic and slightly dangerous, but mostly it's like this lush, romantic kind of score. And and Nathan, and just giving Nathan permission to go for that. And then see, hearing what he did, I, I'm with you. I feel like I listen to that score. I'm just like, oh, my God, this is a whole different movie.
0: Well, and I think that kind of shows the value of bringing your collaborators on early. I mean, it's funny because I've, I've noticed recently, both moderating myself and then just going to a lot of panels on recent films, uh, you know, I've noticed that one continuity between the movies I like the most is the directors start talking with their composer, their editor, people like that very very early on. Yeah. Um, and so how about your editor? Like what's what are those initial conversations like and
1: Yeah, I mean, Bob again, very early read of the script and we'll talk through it and sometimes he'll have ideas even in the script phase about cuts or about, you know, structural things. It can be really useful. And then he's out there with us on location assembling while um, while we're shooting and i mean the main thing that's really useful for us is he can have an eye on story and let us know if there's anything he feels like we missed and um so before we'll strike a set or before we'll wrap an actor or what have you we'll check in with bob typically it won't be like oh you're missing this insert you're missing that because usually i've planned all that stuff out but it'll be we're missing this character's perspective on this scene um, and we could really use a shot from this character's POV of this other character doing this because I think that's important. So he's again he's been in on the ground level so we can be thinking on that story level and know kind of what's important to the thing. Uh, and yeah, that's the kind of collaboration you just you hope for.
0: Well and with a movie like this, you know, it's so delicate how you reveal information to the audience and making sure that they are, you know, they know what they need to know but aren't getting ahead of it. How do you retain – during the editing process, how do you guys retain your objectivity about what's going to work for an audience, what's not? I mean, do you test screen these movies a lot or –
1: Yeah, we do friends and family screenings. Like we have – we're in our T Street office right now recording this and we have just a little screening room down there. It's like – but it seats like maybe 15 people. So um we'll do little groups like that. We'll, you know, we do at the end of the process do like bigger test screenings, proper ones. Um, the reality is, I mean, uh, it's tough with this small sample size. Um, you can get some useful information, but it's always hard. I think end of the day, it becomes a thing where you just kind of have to trust your gut. And, um, and at some point, lose all perspective entirely on what you're cutting, and and panic, and <laughs> make decisions in blind fear. Um, now you just have to kind of like ground yourself and just kind of um, listen to your friends, but then also mostly like trust your gut. I think, and and that's where it, it's great to have a collaborator like Bob, where we can kind of check each other, you know.
0: And you know, what has the experience been for you? Uh, you know, as it's, it's, the movie's been. You know, went to Toronto, and I don't know if it's been going to other festivals, but now it's playing theatrically. Do you watch it with an audience, and what's the experience like?
1: Yeah, I had never enjoyed watching my own movies with audiences. I, I had always found it, like, a really painful kind of, like, like worried, are they liking it type experience until I made Knives Out. And then with this one even more so, um, these movies I actually enjoy sitting down with a crowd and watching it um, because because these are kind of engineered to get a crowd laughing and that's kind of that and the fact that they they seem like they work it's it's like the kind of joy in a theater you, you, you want to have so I, I actually I do, I, I show up for a and A. I'll try and get there half an hour early and stand in the back and kind of absorb the whole end sequence with the audience um, I find it really, yeah, really energizing actually
0: mm-hmm. Great, so uh, I guess before I let you go uh when can we expect knives out three is that is that gonna be your next movie
1: uh yeah i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna go go right into it i'm actually been like i thought that um i that it might be healthy to do something totally different next um but then the more i started thinking about like you know the ideas that i had my brain just kept coming back to the next mystery movie and uh yeah and so i I have a couple ideas i'm excited about and uh i'm already starting to kind of chip away at it and it's it's the most it's the most creatively exciting thing for me right now is figuring out the next one of these so so yeah i'll go right into it probably actually properly start writing like after christmas i'm guessing yeah
0: all right perfect well great well this has been great ryan thanks so much for uh, taking the time to do this appreciate it